0: With its immense oil reserves, there was a time when Venezuela was called the Saudi Arabia of Latin America. This reliance on oil rents invariably distorted much of the economy, making it cheaper to import food rather than produce it locally. This decades-long arrangements helps explain Venezuela's challenges when it comes to securing food sovereignty, which is a situation where producers control the mechanisms and policies of food production and distribution, while guaranteeing enough supply of nutritional food to meet domestic demand. With the collapse of the price of oil and the effects of the U.S.-led sanctions that have crippled the industry, the scenario has changed, and the oil sector can no longer fuel the rest of the economy. This shift, and the pressing need to secure a model that allows for locally produced healthy and nutritious food for Venezuelans, has made the land question more important than ever. But this has brought about renewed class conflicts. The large landowners, the latifundistas. Once content to leave their lands idle, are now interested in expanding the agribusiness model, extracting rents from the land, bringing them into direct conflict with campesinos who are fighting to control and produce on that land in order to develop an agroecological model based on family agriculture that looks to build food sovereignty. Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, José Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings independent, on-the-ground English language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftist and grassroots forces. On today's program, we're going to take a look at the class struggle behind the ongoing disputes over land and the food production model in Venezuela. With the multifactorial crisis the country is facing, campesinos have been witness to worrisome developments in the countryside. The loss of land previously recovered from the bourgeoisie, the withdrawal of support from the state, and increasing violence by the landowners against those fighting to redistribute the land. In their efforts to secure more rent from the land, the large landowners have even gone on the offensive, conspiring to change the country's historic land law, approved during the early years of Hugo Chávez's presidency, which marked the beginning of the end of the Latifundista system, a relic of the country's colonial period. The 2001 land law addressed land ownership inequality by laying down conditions for unproductive plots to be rescued by campesinos. This legislation led to the rescuing of over 60% of the country's large, idle estates. Land titles were progressively provided to small and mid-sized producers working the lands. As proof of the class dynamics at play, it was the land law, alongside the hydrocarbons law, that were the main catalyzers for the 2002 coup attempt against Chávez. In the face of these growing threats, the campesino sector has been mobilized and have secured a commitment from the Venezuelan government to defend the land law. But there are other pending demands. To elaborate on the state of the campesino struggle today, we will speak with Andres Alayo. He is one of the key leaders of the Campesino Struggle Platform, which brings together local and autonomous peasant, communal, and revolutionary organizations in order to present a unified voice and organize their demands, which include the legalization of recovered land, justice for the victims of targeted assassinations and landowner finance violence, the restructuring of agrarian institutions, and promotion of a national plan to support campesinos and small producers to help establish food sovereignty in Venezuela. But first, a conversation between myself and Ricardo Vaz, editor at Venezuela Analysis, about the historic struggle of campesinos before and during the Bolivarian process. It's good to have you back here on the program again. We're always happy to hear your analysis. And today we're talking about the campesino movement, the struggle of the agricultural sector in Venezuela. And I wanted to start with this question. As you know, Venezuela is a highly proletarianized economy. It's a large working class, the agricultural sector, not quite as large, as important as it has been in other situations in Latin America. Nonetheless, we've seen lots of organization and mobilization by campesinos and campesino organizations in Venezuela. What role would you say the campesino movement played in the political struggles in Venezuela up to and including the arrival of Chávez to power?
1: Hi, José Luis. Always, always good to, to be here and discuss some, some of these more, most important, uh, interesting and important aspects of of the Bolivarian Revolution, and and certainly the the campesino struggles qualify as that. And your your intro pretty much said it all. I mean, it's it's not as large an agricultural sector as in other countries, but it has had a huge role to play, and specifically in the Bolivarian Revolution. If we go back to to the Fourth Republic, perhaps you know this this period that existed before Chavez came to power, and which had a lot of of popular struggles, they were perhaps more focused on on the cities. I mean, if we think about the the flashpoint, the explosion that was kind of the beginning of the end, that was the Caracaso. So it was very much an urban uprising. But it, that doesn't mean that there weren't uh, rural precedents that also fought against the system. I mean, if, if we go back to the 60s and 70s, there was a guerrilla movement here in Venezuela, which wasn't as well known as in other parts and perhaps didn't last as long and didn't get as far but it was still very very relevant and it was mostly located in the countryside in this kind of agricultural base uh in perhaps the west the west of the country but then of course it all changes with with chavez i mean we shouldn't overplay chavez's uh, own personality and and his his origins but it, but he it comes from from the deep rural state of barinas he also had Once he was in the military, he was also deployed in these rural areas. So we got to witness firsthand and he got to live firsthand this very unequal countryside. And that was one of the the problems that he set out to solve once he got to power. So perhaps the most significant solution or the most significant step forward was the land law in 2001. I mean, we talk about Chavez radicalizing as as he as he goes along in in his presidency also as a result of the counter revolutionary efforts, for example, I mean we only start talking about socialism in in two thousand and six. yet this law that was already uh, published in in two thousand and one already had some very uh, progressive or even revolutionary content which created a lot of uh, anger and rejection from the the most powerful land-owning guilds. So this is a law that essentially allowed uh, campesinos and and rural organizations to take over unproductive land and unproductive land in these very large privately owned or some even state-owned estates. So that was kind of the the, the recognition that Venezuela was one of the countries in Latin America that had the most unequal land distribution and thus it was one of the, the most urgent problems to address. And yet, even though uh, this was a priority for Chavez, it doesn't mean that the the Campesino movement just stood there uh, thankfully and and waited for things to happen. Even even during these very effervescent Chavez years where lots of things were happening and the country was moving forward at this breakneck speed, the Campesino movement was also highly mobilized. I mean, there was a, a wonderful march in 2006, which was called uh, I think, Samora toma Caracas. So Samora takes over Caracas, where there was this uh, very big campesino mobilization that came to Caracas with horses and all, basically telling the, the government that you know things were not moving fast enough, that there were still uh, issues and inequalities to address in the countryside. And the choice of, of Samora is also not, no coincidence. Samora was a uh, was a revolutionary leader in the 19th century who led a mostly peasant army to take on this uh, new oligarchic republic that was kind of cementing itself after after the Venezuelan independence. So the, the Campesino movement has always been uh, mobilized. And perhaps if we think about the change that the Bolivar Revolution has brought about, they were perhaps less marked or less or more difficult to implement in this very remote rural environments where perhaps the, the old structures could survive and that's why the struggle has always been more visible in in, in these parts in these parts of the country and, and we we can also kind of fast forward a bit to the present where I mean we, we had this this cycle of uh, opposition coup attempts I mean we had the Guarimbas in I mean we can just we can just start into 2017 we had the Gorimbas. And then in 2018, Maduro was was reelected, and I mean that was a time when when the government started to change change course to try and, and address this economic crisis and change course to in in a, an orthodox direction. And there was a bit of a, a sense of um, a, a, a lethargic sensation was taking over the, the the Chavista movements, and then all of a sudden. I wouldn't say out of nowhere, it just means that people were not paying attention. There was this huge march coming from the countryside where campesinos walked all the way from Guanare, Guanare is some 500 kilometers away from Caracas, all the way to, to the capital to meet with Maduro and to highlight these these problems in the countryside that not only were not getting solved, they were getting bigger. So not just issues in, in production, but also violence from from landowners. And so this was a, a moment that kind of shook. Chavismo out of its slumber to, to make people understand, to make the popular movement understand that you know, the struggle is far from over and it needs to, to be constantly activated if, if we are to, to tackle these, these inequalities that won't, won't get solved overnight and, you know, like I said, require this, this constant struggle.
0: As we know, there's also been a number of important advances. Yes, the struggle has not reached its conclusion, but a lot has been done. And I wanted to share with you this personal anecdote. So when I was a teenager, just getting into politics, 14, 15 years old, I remember a high school teacher of mine named Mr. McAndrew. He really stressed that the inequality in Latin America that we were studying was due to the unequal distribution of land. And I remember thinking at the time, well, why doesn't the state just redistribute the land? It seems obvious, right? Well, now I know that this phenomenon is due to the balance of forces and the power of the landowning bourgeoisie in Latin America. But it still stuck with me, and I've something that I've really tried to keep top of mind as someone who's mostly based in the city, this question of the agricultural situation and the situation facing campesinos. And I share this anecdote because I was reading a recent interview that we did with the former agricultural minister, Juan Carlos Loyo, and he said, quote, Like no other, Chavez was able to survey Venezuela's vast landscape, saw the people who inhabited it, and was able to understand history from a subaltern perspective. Campesinos had struggled for more than 200 years. Leftist intellectuals wrote about the problem of the latifundia. University students joined the fight. But Chavez was the one who was able to break with the old, unjust, and inefficient forms of land tenure in Venezuela, end quote. When I read that, it gave me chills. So what has the revolution meant for the landless campesinos in Venezuela?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, that, that's a great story. I hope your teacher will listen to our podcast. And yes, I, I recommend that people take a look at this two-part interview we did with uh, Juan Carlos Loyo, who was agriculture minister, uh, I think from 2010 to 2013, which was one of the most interesting periods in terms of, you know, fighting back against this entrenched land-owning uh, elite. So, I mean, the I think the most significant weapon for, you know, addressing this land redistribution uh, this land distribution inequality in Venezuela was the land law in 2001 but you know that's just an instrument which then needs to be put into practice and it has been put into practice i mean if if i if i'm not mistaken i think 6.5 million hectares of unproductive land have been rescued by the bolivar revolution and that has mostly been placed into the hands of previously landless campesinos so i mean if we if we're talking about people who live in the countryside and work the land. This is kind of the first step towards, you know, reclaiming their, their dignity. I mean, this is what their, their existence revolves around. So the Bolivarian revolution uh, kind of recognized that there was, as Loyo said, a, a 200 year old debt that needed to be settled with, with the campesinos. I mean, I don't want to take too much of a detour. But when there was the independence struggle in, in, in Venezuela, there were several iterations in, in you know, Bolívar's, the Bolívar-led effort to, to defeat the, the Spanish monarchy. And it finally succeeded when Bolívar, and that's the most progressive version of Bolívar, he understood that he needed the popular army, you know, an army that would include uh, freed slaves and these rural peasants and indigenous people and so on. To fight for for a, for a common goal, not just a matter of replacing a one oligarch, a Spanish oligarchy, with a a Creole one. And one of the promises that Bolivar did was that there would be land for 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 his soldiers. And in fact, the land was was assigned, but the country was just in such a dire state that this new, the I mean Bolivar's generals after Bolivar was out of the picture simply took over, and they were able to just get the land back on, on the cheap or just taking it over because the, these, these soldiers had no means of of maintaining it. So this was kind of a historic debt that was in place from the the moment when the country began to exist as an independent republic. And then I, I had mentioned this uh, Samora led insurrection, which was mostly based on the inequalities, mostly driven by the inequalities in the countryside that was also frustrated. And then this simmered for more than a hundred years until finally there was someone who you know as, as loyal so aptly describes really understood the entire picture and went about trying to to tackle it so I, I think the I mean the, the land law is, is definitely uh, kind of it, it marks a, a watershed moment in, in in history in in the campesino struggle history and that perhaps it's why it's, it's no surprise that the rural movements, uh, are adamant and constantly mobilized against any attempts to to reform this land law, to kind of bring in or, or to soften soften it to to kind of make it more favorable to land owning interests.
0: Yeah, and I think it can't be overstated how important it is to have an actual land reform that delivers land into the hands of campesinos, landless campesinos. You know, I've I've had a lot of. Experience working alongside activists from the landless peasants movement in Brazil, the MST, and they always say this land is more than just land. But I wanted to talk about Venezuela and the so called Dutch disease. A lot has been written about this, about the size and the importance of the oil sector leading to a decrease in the agricultural sector, and I think that's something that has been proven through facts and figures. But There really were concerted efforts by the government to foster agricultural production and have people return to the countryside. As we know, many of the barrios and the hillsides of Caracas are filled with people who came from the countryside looking for work and opportunities. What were the results of those efforts to get people back into the land? And why did they fall short in terms of actually securing food sovereignty in the country, which, as we know, ended up having pretty significant repercussions in terms of access to food for working class Venezuelan,
1: yeah, I think Dutch disease is, is an excellent starting point, and perhaps in Venezuela it's uh, doubly t- tragic because Venezuela inherited this kind of colonial land distribution, and there was never really much of an effort to modernize agriculture. So you had a model that was basically built on on latifundio. Latifundio are these very large and mostly unproductive. Estates, which perhaps produced some corn or, or cocoa, to for exports or used use the land uh, to 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 rear cattle, and then you had this very undeveloped agricultural base, and on top of that, you discovered oil. So oil, and given the huge reserves that that were found here in Venezuela, just had this really outsized importance in the Venezuelan economy that completely marginalized all other sectors and agriculture in particular. There's a very interesting book by a Venezuelan writer, poet and, and communist Orlando Araujo. And he says that the tragedy of Venezuelan agriculture is that all the industrialization efforts that came, and and these were efforts built out of the oil rent, they were never connected to the agricultural base. So in a way You had this agricultural production that remained very underdeveloped and it never got to a point where it fed these very uh, fledgling industrialization efforts. So you had industries like this industry that produces corn flour and it was relying on on imported corn rather than corn that was produced in Venezuela because I mean, given we are in a a capitalist environment, I mean, it's always money talks and if it's cheaper to import because these very powerful sectors were very close to the rent, so they had access to to cheap dollars. It was much uh, cheaper to to import than to actually develop production, which would become a a longer term effort. And in a way, this this is a problem that becomes a a negative cycle where the countryside gets ever more impoverished. And because it's more impoverished, people migrate to the cities and you have these huge barrios with very poor conditions where people come just to be closer to to be closer to the rent and to be closer to work opportunities, and so on. So so when Chavez comes to power, this is the country that he inherits. You know, with a, not not just a very unequal wealth distribution, but also uh, an unequal land distribution, and also a highly concentrated population in urban centers. So I mean, when we talk about uh, food sovereignty, I think Chavez's first priority was food security, and this was kind of fed by a high oil income where basically you know before we can address any kind any structural issues there was a need to raise living standards for, for the huge majority but of course i mean there was also an understanding that there was a reason why things were so unequal and also the, the need to to address to address them I and mean, you were mentioning the having people go back to the countryside there were there were efforts to do so but I think they came in, in a later stage of, of Chávez's presidency, and so they never really materialized. I think in order for this to be to be successful, there was a need to build a kind of a, an ecosystem around agricultural production that would make it more viable. For example, there were efforts to you know, build tractors here in Venezuela with Iranian, and then I think Belarusian assistance. And also, I mean, you can't just produce, you also need to process. So do, can you develop a, an endogenous interest, industry that will process things and not just become a, an exporter of, of primary production like many Latin American countries? And and those efforts, I mean, we shouldn't cut them too much slack. I mean, there were also, there were mistakes, there was corruption, but I think those efforts were cut short and in, once Chavez died and, and the crisis arrived, then it, it, it just... Un- unraveled very quickly, I mean for example, there was this company called Agroislena, which had the monopoly of distributing seeds and fertilizers and, and other inputs. This was nationalized as it should be to you know allow campesinos to have you know sm- small and mid-sized producers to access these in- inputs for for production. There was another company called Pedro Camejo Pedro Camejo was a liberated slave who fought alongside believer and this was a a a, company, a very interesting idea to have machinery available for again for for small and mid-sized producers in the countryside. but you know once the crisis arrived the, these companies were very dependent on on imports they were they didn't make the the transition of having a kind of self-sufficient environment where they could rely on 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 domestic production and so once the, the the crisis arrives and and there's a huge drop in oil revenues and the state is no longer able to to import all these all these inputs it becomes a problem and it, and, it, and it affects the the smallest producers the most because they have the least purchasing power and so you know circling back to what i was saying in the beginning you know once once the government realize that the whatever they're what they're trying is not working and they go in this, this more orthodox direction, one of the things that comes with that is a, a bigger private sector involvement. And so you had these companies like Agropatria and Pedro Camejo be partially or, or totally transferred to to private actors in, in, in the countryside. And so that means that it becomes even harder for for Campesinos to to access what they need to produce and that's perhaps why there's a resurgence of the campesino struggle. I think the important thing to understand is that this is a, a very di- the, the Bolivarian revolution is a very dynamic process with constant struggle. So it's not that, you know, the government has flipped the switch and now they like the landowners and no longer like the campesinos. No, I mean, the government is in a very difficult situation with perhaps almost indescribable difficulties because of US sanctions. And so it has chosen some pragmatic solutions as a way to to address the situation and it has made some you know perhaps difficult choices but at the same time it is also responsive to struggle i mean just to mention one one recent example and perhaps i'll I'll wrap up there last year there was a, a parliamentary commission working on a plan to reform the land law and this immediately set set off alarm bells because it included Uh, deputies within Chavismo, but but perhaps the more right-wing or conservative elements within Chavismo, working alongside Fedenaga, that's the Cattle Ranchers Guild, which has been a historical enemy of the Bolivar Revolution. So they came up with a proposal to reform the land law, and that immediately triggered a huge campesino mobilization who came to Caracas, and they managed to to sit down with government representatives, and they they got a pledge that the, the land law was not going to be touched as well as setting up some some working groups to address some of the ongoing issues in in the countryside so we shouldn't kind of take a a very external view that all these things are predetermined but rather that there's a struggle going on that it's, it's a process that's very dynamic and which has this uh this horizon that was set off that was drawn out by by Chávez of of socialism and and food sovereignty and so on, and a mobilized campesino base that's going to to fight for it no matter what.
0: I think that's a great note to end on. Ricardo, as always, thank you for your analysis, for that retelling of Venezuela's history, and the emphasis that you put on the present struggle of faith in the Venezuelan masses and the campesinos to defend their interests. Thanks so much.
2: Campesinos. Campesinos. Moral? Alta
0: alta. As we discussed in the previous segment, despite the massive gains for campesinos, there are still a number of problems rural Venezuela faces today. In this interview, Andres Alayo, one of the key spokespeople of the Campesino Struggle platform, tells us about these challenges and the organizing and efforts by rural workers to continue to deepen the transformation of the countryside in the midst of an ongoing multi-factor crisis in Venezuela. Since the start of the Bolivarian Revolution, millions of hectares of latifundio land has been recovered. But you have commented before that there is a restoration of the old order. The power of the large landowners is still present in the country and in the current context is re-emerging, and even sometimes with the approval of authorities. How is the peasant movement in Venezuela facing that power? Does the government need to reorient its policy in the countryside?
2: Yes,
3: that's true. In the 20 years since the approval of the Land Agrarian Development Law, over 5 million hectares of land have been rescued. But in parallel to the land recovery process, violence also emerges. Targeted killings and paramilitarism funded and orchestrated by the landowning oligarchy to oppose the implementation of this law. This violence led to plenty of killings. We're talking about more than 350 assassinated campesinos. It was a class conflict in the countryside that persists to this day. Though it's true that in recent years, the polarization and confrontation between campesinos and landowners has diminished, we firmly believe that there is a regrouping effort by the landowning class, and that now there are new actors in the countryside, especially agricultural entrepreneurs. These are the actors that have emerged with the Bolivarian process. So, this regrouping of the landowning class implies that they are also moving to recover their lands. In that sense, we are very concerned, and we have denounced that last year Ferenaga, the National Federation of Venezuelan Cattle Ranchers, drafted and presented land reform requests before the National Assembly. Their goal was not only to reform the land law, but also the food security and sovereignty law, fishing laws, a whole package of laws. They also requested the return of their lands, lands that belonged to the nation, that were rescued by Comandante Chavez through the land law. There are more than 50 landsteads whose former owners won't return to them. So this is part of a regrouping of the landowning oligarchy, which President Chávez had kept at bay. At the same time, there are these big businesses, big corporations, one of them is the Bell Corporation, which have their eyes set on thousands of hectares, thousands of hectares and many companies like sugar mills that used to belong to the state and are now being passed on to private owners. This is a bourgeoisie that has appeared during the Bolivarian process, so there arises a new contradiction the contradiction between the campesino class and these new actors, this kind of corporate, rural bourgeoisie that arose within the Bolivarian Revolution, as well as the traditional landowning oligarchy. Therefore, we say that we have to deepen the land struggle, that we have to deepen the democratization of the land. The Venezuelan state focused on the recovery of land. It concentrated a big amount of rescued landsteads, as well as companies like Ceval, for example. Ceval was a gigantic conglomerate, which had not only industries, but also land. This was all broken apart. Many plots went to the Armed Forces Agriculture Corporation or other companies in the sector, and those lands are now being passed on to private actors as well through alliance models. What interests us, beyond the idea of reactivating production in the countryside, is for the state to retain its sovereignty, to retain its ownership over these landsteads. And we are particularly interested in having the lands that are in the hands of the campesinos also benefit from development policies to reactivate production because otherwise we'll see a model of corporate development take over the subsistence model of the campesinos and small
2: producers.
0: In Venezuela, there was a great advance in the redistribution of land, but conflicts and violence have not ceased. Where does this violence come from? And what is needed to stop the attacks against campesinos?
2: Sí, un avance, un avance La de la
3: Indeed, there was progress, huge progress, in democratizing the land. But as we said, in parallel to the land law, targeted killings also emerged. In 2001, we had our first assassinated comrade, Luciendo Lago, a campesino leader in Sur del Lago. From that point, hundreds of others followed, killed by this class based violence. The assassinations are carried out by paramilitary hitmen, but financed, orchestrated, sheltered by the cattle ranch guilds and the landowning oligarchy. So that is not stopped, is not stopped at all. There are several levels to it. On the one hand, there's the issue of the targeted killings and paramilitary violence. And on the other hand, there's the violence brought by the institutions, some unworthy police and judicial officials who opt to support the violent evictions. This institutional violence, which complements the other, more military violence, has decreased somewhat in recent years. We believe that in spite of the fact that the government— we've had many mobilizations and dialogue efforts with the government— in spite of many pledges and firm commitments from the president, the vice president, the president of the National Assembly, the agriculture minister, and the attorney general himself to fight for justice in the countryside, unfortunately, we still have plenty of unpleasant situations. We still have campesino comrades who are in prison, in states like Huarico or Sulia, And we still have dozens of campesinos out on bail that need to present themselves regularly before the authorities, because the criminal cases for which they were charged over their participation in the struggle for the land have yet to have their charges dismissed. That's another big issue. Almost all of the criminal cases are related to land struggles, so they should be judged in the agrarian sphere, not the criminal sphere. So when the struggle for land is criminalized, it has a domino effect, And all of our struggles in recent years have been precisely to eliminate the criminalization of the Campesino struggles. An agrarian prosecutor's office was created, an agrarian ombudsman's office might be next. We're in that struggle, in a period of tension, of progress, but there's also inertia in the institutions when the time comes to execute this type of agreement, these gains that are achieved by the Campesino mobilizations. We really value and appreciate the president's commitment, as well as from the vice president, Delci Rodriguez, agriculture minister, Castro Soteldo, their commitment to defend the land law and uphold justice in the countryside. But what we need now is for those pledges to materialize and to become a priority so that the measures against injustices in the countryside are enacted, because
0: right now the situation is very delicate. In the midst of the crisis and under the sanctions imposed by imperialism, in several sectors, we have seen a rapprochement with the bourgeoisie by the government, including in the agricultural sector. There are analysts who argue that the result of the elections in Barinas, where Chavismo lost, is due to this accommodation of the government with the large landowners. In other words, the campesino sector punished the government over this. Do you share that analysis? And for the organized campesino movement, what public policies are required?
2: Para es un secreto que, bueno, hay un acercamiento bastante grande
3: it's no secret that there's a significant reproachment between the government and the business community, and a good part of the agricultural bourgeoisie is also in dialogue with the government. There's a national dialogue policy being promoted by President Maduro, with the idea of reaching agreements to reactivate production, and one of the priorities is precisely the agro-industrial sector. For example, in recent years the agro-industrial sectors have grown tremendously, These are the companies that import raw materials, process them, and then supply the markets. In the agricultural sector, it's been different. In fact, small and mid-sized producers, not only campesinos, we're also talking about private producers, have been affected by this. In other words, there's not much growth in the agricultural sector, in contrast to the agro-industrial sector. These are the actors that are reaping most of the benefits from the ongoing economic liberalization process. There is a liberalization and de facto dollarization going on, and in practical terms, agro-industrial sectors are benefiting the most. In reading the Barinas results, I wouldn't read much in terms of a pact with the bourgeoisie, with the Barinas landowners. I think the Barinas situation is the consequence of years of very poor management from governors. These governors, unfortunately, were brothers of our comandante Hugo Chávez. There was an abandonment of the state of Barinas. It was left out of public policies, and above all, there was a divorce between those governorships and the campesino class. It's no secret, we've denounced it, for example, that plenty of evictions, plenty of criminalization and judicialization efforts against popular struggles took place in Barinas. We're talking about 2015, 2016, 2017. There were policies that went against the peasant class. So the Barinas countryside has suffered a lot as a consequence of these terrible policies. Adán and Arhenis Chávez, who obviously geared their policies towards other sectors, but not at all in favor of small producers, the campesino class. Of course, that also counted when the elections arrived. However, with Jorge Arias's candidacy, a lot of votes were recovered in the rural sector. A lot of them. But there was not enough time, and the urban population, which is a majority in Barinas, decided to support the opposition, handing them the victory. However, for the Campesino movement, the struggle continues. We held a great assembly on December 10th of 2021, where the Campesino class expressed its support for comrade Jorge Ariasa, and we commemorated the 20th anniversary of the land law, as well as the Battle of Santa Inés. This demonstration, this unified mobilization of all the campesino organizations, with more than 2,000, 3,000 people present, is something to build upon. Something from which to build organic political force with presence in the countryside, with presence in Barinas, and at the national level. In what concerns Barinas, we've made it clear that we are going to lead the mobilization effort against any and all landowner efforts against all judicialization and criminalization attempts against campesinos, against eviction policies that landowning interests are pushing in alliance with a new buddiness governorship.
0: Much has been said about the role of oil revenue in the unique development of the countryside in Venezuela during the 20th century. Now, with the economic crisis and reduced oil revenue, the issue of agricultural production has become more relevant, to the extent that even the large landowners are seeking more control and to extract rent from the land they hold how can the campesino sector take advantage of this dynamic and promote a new agricultural model and completely bury the latifundio system?
3: Yes, I think Venezuela has closed that chapter of being a country that lived off the oil rent. With the political battles, the international siege, and the new policies that have marked a shift in the Bolivarian process, that has come to an end. This Saudi-Venezuela with a monoproducing, oil-dependent economy no longer exists. Nowadays, we have a country that's in the midst of a deep crisis that is multifactorial. But in this context, there's a huge number of initiatives, from small and mid-sized campesinos, even from large-scale producers to boost production. Therefore, in this scenario, the big landowners are fighting to impose their model, a model of latifundio, an agribusiness that characterizes the countryside bourgeoisie, and which has grown in the shadow of the Bolivarian process. There's a struggle between two models to see which one imposes itself. The agribusiness model of the rural bourgeoisie or a model of diversified family agriculture that looks to build food sovereignty, which is our model. The model of the Venezuelan campesino movement, of the campesino struggle platform, is also shared and pushed on the global stage through alliances such as CLOC and Via Campesina, so, this struggle is front and center of the political debate right now. For example, last year during the winter cycle, many of these agricultural corporations illegally introduced genetically modified seeds, transgenic corn, in violation of the law. And it was a disaster because the producers who received inputs and funding from these companies, many of them ended up in debt or bankrupt. And now these companies that are trying to take over these lands of the producers which they finance with these terrible products, which were also transgenic. In Venezuela, there's a law, the Seed Law, passed in 2015, which prohibits GMOs. Nevertheless, Venezuelan authorities simply looked the other way, and were very lax in allowing GMOs to come into the country. This agribusiness model is a model of agrochemicals, of pesticides, of genetically modified seeds. It's a model of labor exploitation in the countryside. It's a monoproducing model, a model of commodity production for export. So this model, which has done so much damage to the soil, to the people, to health, especially to farm workers in Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, Chile, they're trying to copy and impose it here in Venezuela. Against that model, there's ours, a model of campesino production, built on small and mid-sized plots with diversified production the use of appropriate fertilizers, agroecological, organic production that is friendly to the soil, a land that belongs to the families who work it, with production meant for self-subsistence as well as supplying local communities and markets. This is a liberation model that connects us to what historically has been campesino culture in Latin America. So, to conclude, amidst the multifactorial crisis that Venezuela is facing, these two visions are confronting each other in practice because, naturally, the state is allowing markets to determine which model wins out. But there are also state policies, there are laws that we need to defend and ensure that these models that harm the land, harm people, contaminate water, cause health problems, don't end up imposing themselves. That is at the center of the debate. It's part of the contradictions that we're facing right now.
2: Esta es la historia del general Pedro Pérez Delgado, el que llamaban May Santa, el último hombre a
0: caballo. That's our program for today. Thank you for joining us. Remember, our on-the-ground work is 100% funded by readers. Please consider making a one-time donation or becoming a subscriber by visiting our website, venezuelanalysis.com. You can also support us on Patreon. Be sure to visit us at the website for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media, from Telegram to Instagram and, of course, Twitter. If you enjoyed this program, please share it with your friends and leave us a review if you can. It really helps us out. We'll close today's episode with a song in the traditional style of the Venezuelan llanos by the popular Chavista singer Cristobal Jiménez. It is called El Último Hombre a Caballo and is dedicated to Santa, a campesino who led guerrilla struggles in the Venezuelan countryside in the early 20th century. He also happened to be Hugo Chávez's great-grandfather. Thanks for joining us.
2: Tres cosas se complicaron, sangre del indio y del blanco. Producidas en el llano, nació en el pueblo de Ospino con una explosión de rayos para vivir en el mismo. Hasta la edad de seis años, después en Marquisimeto, donde sus padres lo enviaron, pudo estudiar un poquito y cursar el tercer año. Habiendo muerto a su padre apenas tenía 12 años Se trastornó la familia, no pudo seguir estudiando Hombre activo y malicioso, siempre andaba preparado A pesar de su niñez era como iluminado, con su hermana y con su madre, vivían bajo el desamparo claro que faltaba el viejo las cosas habían cambiado, vivían bajo su pobreza, pero siempre como honrado, pero en la muerte de Cristo no debe faltar el diablo el prefecto del pueblito, mujeriego enamorado, embarazó la muchacha de aquel hogar enlutado envuelta en crisis de nervios, cayó la madre llorando, con lágrimas de dolor, de ver lo que había pasado y le dijo a la muchacha voy a contarle a tu hermano, es el hombre De la casa tendrá que hacerse reclamo porque tu padre fue un hombre que se nunca fue vejado. Se valen de la ocasión porque mi hijo está mediano. Cuando llegó de la calle, madre e hijo se encerraron y le contó lo ocurrido para que fuera pensando. Ya la viuda pesarosa le tenía bien preparado. Un rifle y 50 tiros que había dejado el finado. Oyó sonar un disparo y cayó al cuerpo sin vida del mujeriego del barrio, ya la madre le tenía. Necesito planchado y la Virgen del Socorro dentro de un escapulario para que clamara a ella en su momento forzado cuando estuviera en peligro o en cualquier parte peleando salió con rumbo a Valencia temiendo ser apresado Ay santa dijo al salir besando el escapulario hizo su estadía en Valencia sin ser nunca sospechado y con la serenidad él nunca dio a demostrarlo quizás buscando otro ambiente hizo venir regresando se devolvió a Tinaquillo y vivía siendo mandado por cierto el último Fue comprar unos cigarros que se fumó el Mocho Hernández una vez que estaba hablando en el mismo tinaquillo con otros aliados lo regaló Alfredo Franco no fue preciso comprarlo otro hombre de envergadura y bien revolucionario esa noche el mocho Hernández dejó al pueblo conquistado y Pedro Pérez también quedó muy adelantado claro que era un jovencito pero ya estaba aprobado en los campos de batalla dejó su valor regado en la mata carmelera cuando a Crespo lo mataron también peleó en Periquera al lado del mocho Payara Chopito y Ciudad de Nutrias en el Orza y San Fernando teniendo como el derrocar al tirano hasta caer prisionero por lo que él había luchado hombre de ideales puros, llanero rebelde alzado era un guerrero idealista que vio su sueño frustrado y terminó en el rigor del régimen carcelario llevando pesados grillos y muy lejos de los llanos May Santa murió en el castillo libertador de Puerto Cabello una tarde del mes de mayo de 1929